Oh, I just hate to take that off. That's so good. That's uh, the brand new release called Moon from the band Enigma. They play around southeast Nebraska. They're the official theme music here for the Exploring Unexplained Phenomenal Radio Show. I'm Scott Colborn. It's sure great to have you with us, whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home. We've got a great show for us today. And, uh, Jim, if you'd grab that, uh, that format list of mine back there on the table, apparently I left it back there, the show announcements. We're going to start off with Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. And uh, see, that's why you get a cup of coffee. That's why we, yeah. we employ you here. So. I'm only here for the coffee. <laughs> Preston Dennett's up next then with The Scene and the Unseen. Always some cool stories. And uh, almost on the anniversary date, we've got the author and historian Mark Nesbitt back. We'll be talking about the Civil War. We'll be talking about the Battle of Gettysburg. And the brand new book, Volume 8, Ghosts of Gettysburg, Apparitions, Spirits, and Haunted Places, of the battlefield. Mark Nesbitt, our main guest coming up. I hope you folks had a great 4th of July. I'm uh, uh, personally of the opinion that uh, we should shorten down the, the uh, allowable time for shooting fireworks to about uh, maybe 15 minutes on July 4th. <laughs> because people in my neighborhood, um, they uh, apparently believe that the, the laws and ordinances are for somebody else. Because there's been some guy shooting off these great big, you know, wall-shaking things at 11 o'clock every night since about mid-June. And uh, come on, folks. Let's, uh, let's set a better example for the young people, okay? Well, and I heard some last Jeez. night again. And uh, Yeah. I'll have to give the folks in my neighborhood credit. They did cut it off about midnight on the 4th. Well, so, thank goodness uh, for I the was, rain, too. I that helped. For that. Yeah, that helped. Kind of forced to cut off early, maybe. And uh, we had uh, some of the uh, the casualties of the Fourth of July. Some mm -hmm. people that were seriously hurt by fireworks. So, whenever you engage in that stuff, just be really careful. Mm -hmm. Yes, there, there's a reason they call them fireworks. There is fire <laughs> involved, and explosions, and uh, all sorts of hazardous things. Well, after a week off, we welcome back Charlene with Pet Talk, and she's with the Capital Humane Society. And uh, she should be right there. Hi, Charlene. Good morning. How are you? Doing very well, thank you. And what's going on at the Capital Humane Society? Uh, we're very busy. We have lots of dogs and lots of cats. So if you're interested in adoption, we hope your visit or your, your listeners will come out and see us. Um, we have just a great variety, males and females, younger, older, just ready to be a great companion. Uh, enter to win East Stadium Skybox Passes. That's right. We have um, East Stadium Skybox Passes for a variety of games that are coming. Uh, they are $20, and you can purchase those at either of our locations, and you can learn more about the um, raffle that's going on on our website at capitalhumanesociety.org. I see a cat yoga class. What is that all about? That'll be fun. So it's going to be here at the Pylock Pet Adoption Center. Um, the sessions are going to be on Monday evenings, 
and uh, we will have some of our adoption cats joining uh, the yoga participants. <laughs> There's a certified <laughs> yoga instructor, um, and it is a, a little fundraiser for us. So it's a great way to do yoga and have a nice time with some cats and help support our work at the Humane Society. I did not know you could do yoga with cats. <laughs> They'll mostly be supervising. <laughs> oh, yeah, they love to do that, don't they? <laughs> What's it doing? Can you play with me? <laughs> Speaking of cats and kittens, we've got that page open. We're looking, folks, at the CapitalHumaneSociety.org page. And, uh, Jim, are you a mind reader? What's the first cat she's going to pick? Uh, let's see. I'm going to say Bloomer. Bloomer is an excellent choice. <laughs> Let's go with Bloomer. He is a three-year-old neutered male, domestic short hair. You can see he's a little bit shy, so he's hiding in his little cubby there. He's in a colony with some other cats here at the adoption center and doing just fine. Um, but again, he's on the timid side and will appreciate a nice, calm, quiet home. What a handsome fella. Yes. Just beautiful coat and markings. What yeah, but the cat's not bad either. That? <laughs> okay. Nice pick, Jim. You started <laughs> us off here with Bloomer. Uh, well, Bloomer is going to set the stage for some more great cats, and who are they? We'll do Felix and Ox Oscar next. <laughs> they are a perfect pair. Uh, they um, are very bonded, and we want them to get adopted together. Uh, they're nine years old, Aww. both neutered males. Uh, they are both front declawed, so they need to be kept safe indoors only. Um, we have the orange tabby and the black and brown tabby. So cute. Um, they are in a colony with other cats and seem to get along fine, so may just be a great addition to your feline family. Two cats are better than one. You bet. Yep. Yep. When I adopted Jasmine Sonata, that was a great choice. We had years of fun with, with those cats. So uh, Felix and Oscar... And see their pictures at Capital Humane Society, and uh, Jim, you got to you got to mention one. So let me let me pick one too. Go ahead. Sure. Sure. Chubbs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, his name describes him. <laughs> Chubbs, C H U B B S. Boy or she? Excuse me. She's a little bigger girl, but very sweet. Um, she was surrendered because she wasn't a huge fan of children or other cats. So she must meet all children and may not want to be around other cats. Mm -hmm. um, but she can be very sweet, and she's obviously adorable. So yeah. she's looking for just the right person to bring out the best in and, her. And maybe she needs to go on a bit of a diet. I think that would be in her best interest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just think that name is so cool. Hey, hey Chubbs, you hungry? Hey, Chubbs. <laughs> Let's go out and wrestle some cattle. Come on, Chubbs. Chubbs. Hey, Chubbs. Bloomer, Felix, and Oscar. What a pair. And Chubbs. Pictures are up at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. And better yet, folks can go out today and tomorrow and see them. What are the hours open, Charlene? Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 530. Dogs are also for adoption. We've got that page at CapitalHumaneSociety.org opened up. And who's first? We will start with Ziva and Coco. They're another perfect pair, just yeah. like Felix and Oscar the cat. <laughs> so Ziva is a pug mix, and Coco is a chihuahua mix. They both are that soft um, tan color, 
really, really, really cute. So they are looking for a home together. They need to meet other dogs to make sure they all get along if there are other dogs in the home. Um, they uh, probably should meet children, and they should go to a home with no kids under 12. Mm-hmm. And that's because they can be very shy. Um, but I had them out for a walk together yesterday, and they were just loads of fun. And then when we were done, Coco just hopped in my lap. <laughs> a great picture of Ziva and Coco up at capitalhumanesociety.org. They are joined by... Next up, I have Max. And he is a lovely dog. Oh, I guess for some reason his picture's not up there. Let's switch to Olaf. (laughs) So Olaf is next. He's a Siberian Husky, a two-year-old neutered male, beautiful blue eyes, um, wants very much to find an active family that is as energetic as he is. He needs some training and loads of exercise, and then he'll be a very fun-loving companion. Yeah, Olaf, show us your tongue. Uh-huh. Good dog. Beautiful dog. Good dog. Yeah, very cool dog. Mm-hmm. Okay, Siberian Husky fans, Olaf waits for you there at the org. And who's who's next? We'll do Dolly. And Dolly is a one-year-old pit bull. Very, very pretty. Uh, she wants very much to find someone who has lots of energy, just like her. She's very fun, loves to go for walks and play. Uh, we do want her to meet all children to make sure everything's going to work out fine. Um, she does, again, have lots of energy, so she'll need someone who can give her proper training so that she um, learns to be a very well-behaved dog. Hello, Dolly. Here we mm-hmm. go. I was just like, for some reason that song wouldn't come up, Jim. She has this eager look on her face, ready to go, eager to please, wonderful-looking dog. Grab the kids and uh, go out today and tomorrow to see the the fine dogs and cats at the Capital Humane Society. Here's Charlene with Hours Open. Please visit us at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. We are open Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Okay, what's in store, young lady, for you for the rest of the day? A very busy day. I'll have new volunteers coming in, so we'll be showing them the routine, and they'll be helping us with cleaning and other types of necessary things that we need done. We have some great volunteers mowing our lawn right now. Uh, so we really appreciate volunteer support, and I'll just be helping them uh, do their jobs. Always great to talk with you, my friend. Thanks for all that you do. Thank you. Charlene and friends at the Capley Main Society make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. I'm Scott Colborn, and you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Well on our way to... 34 years, wow. 33 years and counting so far. And uh, Jim just remarked about my new haircut. Um, I haven't had hair this short since I was maybe eight. Yeah, that's what, about, a, about an eighth of an inch maybe? You got it right there. Yeah. Put on the old eighth inch spacer and just, you know, just buzz it. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Mr. Buzzman now. <laughs> Saves a lot of time when you're taking a shower, doesn't it? Yeah, I told my uh, my students, you know, wait a minute, I've got to comb my hair. And I go, one time with my hand, I go, okay, I'm done. <laughs> In fact, I've quit carrying a comb. Yeah, you don't need one. And cooling, it's good to have you back. What have you been up to? Oh, just been doing a lot of different projects. Um, 
I know one of them is I um, I recently learned how to make like those fabric headbands. Oh. So we're just, me and my mom are just going to make a whole bunch of them and get those ready for different events. That so. sounds cool. You've got a cough. Are you feeling okay? Yeah, it's like it's 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 like I'm not coughing as much. There's just remnants of phlegm, is what it is. I didn't know if that was just like a rude hello to me when I said, Colleen, good morning. You went, <coughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it just happens at inopportune times. Okay, so. trying to picture Scott with one of those headbands. It's just, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, it could work if the fabric was thick enough, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you have to show us those when you get some done. Yeah, I will. Yeah, speaking of a headband to hold back one's long hair, Jim Shorty. Yeah, I'm up for it. Here you go. Jim's got a camouflage hat on here, too, so I kind of look over and I can't really see the top of his head. It's just like well, all camouflage. Yeah, and I swore that when I start losing my hair, I wouldn't be one of those guys that wears a hat around all the time. But I find when I go outside in the sun, I have to. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I resemble that. So here I am with a hat. One of our favorite people is next uh, up next. This is Preston Dennett from someplace out on the uh, West Coast. And he brings us the seen and the unseen every first Saturday morning. Preston, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing great. I always look forward to your segment because you've got such cool stories to pass along. What's been going on for you, young man? Oh, always keeping busy. You know it. I'm doing a lot of research on UFO healings, the new edition. Oh, excellent. Just got the proof for the latest book I'm putting out, Not From Here, Volume 3. So I've been mostly working on that, always getting inter- or, uh, emails from people. Um, it's really interesting now that I'm working on this healing stuff. I'm getting all these people contacting me, asking them if I can put them in touch with aliens to heal them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, gosh... I feel so bad because some of these people are really ill. Well, it's not like you have them on your speed dial, right? Right. It's yeah. frustrating. I usually you know, send them literature on out-of-body experiences and how you can mm-hmm. use them to heal yourself. But, yeah, I mean, recently I'm just going over this interview I did with this lady named Annie. Um, you know, I've, I interviewed her a while back, but I've got stacks and stacks of tapes that have not transcribed yet. And uh, just finishing transcribing hers, and boy, oh boy, what a story she has. Tell us about a little she, bit about Annie. Really sweet lady, really nice lady. She's married. She has like three kids um, from the Georgia originally, but has moved around quite a bit. You know, in California, uh, up by Lake Erie, something that's a pattern I've seen a lot with abductees, and she's your classic classic case of an abductee. Uh, since she was four years old, these grades have been taking her and just blatantly uh, not really caring if they leave any clues. Um, she'll be taken from her bedroom and wakes up in the living room or the kitchen or the bathroom or the hallway. Uh, her kids have been taken. They've all got scars on their, their bodies. They all know about this. Uh, they call them leprechauns. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she is not happy about her experiences. Um, she's pretty traumatized by it. I 
know, she was going on about how they've taken her many times. She's had five missing pregnancies. Uh, and I finally asked her, I'm like, well, if you could make this stop, would you? And the poor thing broke into tears and just started crying. So the answer was yes. She would make it stop if she could. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's what you call a conscious abductee. She hasn't gone under hypnosis. She remembers all this stuff perfectly. And uh, these ETs told her flat out, well, we don't mean to frighten you. We're here because we can't breathe and we need your help. She says, I don't want to give, I don't want you to come. I don't want to help you. And she says, they told her, well, we need your help. We have to take you. And what we've given you is a psychic boost in exchange for what we've taken from you. And uh, she explained that she's, before 911 happened, she had a vision of that. She had visions of all these disasters before they happened. And uh, all kinds of stuff like this. She talks to these guys and they answer. They told her that they're very concerned about our planet and that we're probably going to destroy it if we don't change our ways. Uh, Gosh, they told her so much stuff. They told her, stop eating meat. You're not supposed to eat meat. It's like being a cannibal. Stop eating meat. It's destroying your heart. We've had to heal your heart, they told her. And she remembered when they did it. They took her on board, laid her out, and she thought that uh, they had a tool in their hand, but they didn't. They just stuck their hand directly into her body and did a hands-on healing that way. She's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? This hurts. It really hurts. They said, we're healing you. It's because you've been eating too much meat. And uh, they tell her, tell everyone else not to eat meat, that it's not good for them. So it's just this crazy case. Her husband is very into this subject, listens to you know, all the radio shows and stuff. She doesn't. She can't stand this subject, doesn't read anything about it, uh, and is just terrified. She says the ETs told her that they were the ones who contacted Ezekiel in the Bible. They told her that the Mayan statues are actually of them, these weird Mayan statues that have big-eyed preachers. And just goes on and on. She says they'd come into her house, they open up the walls like vertical blinds, and they take her. She went running to the living room once she saw her four-year-old son. There were two greys standing on either side of him. She says the, ro- the ro- walls rolled up like vertical blinds. She couldn't move, and both she and her son were taken. Hmm. She says the inside of the UFO looks a lot like a submarine. This is her impression. Very metallic walls, rounded lots of corridors. She walks up into this one room and she saw what she thought was a floating diving board. And they're like, no, that's a table. Get on the table and we're gonna, going to examine you. And, uh, you know, she's an elderly lady now. She's in her 50s. And she's like, why are you still taking me? You know, I'm pretty old. And I said, well, your eggs are still good and we need them. And uh, so I'm in Wait a minute, wait a minute, 50 is elderly? I resemble that remark. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that was sometime earlier. But she's a little bit older than that now. Ah. She's a nurse. But, yeah, I mean, this is the kind of case that just makes me, my heart go out to her, and, and I'm not happy about it, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Greys, I don't think that they're evil. She doesn't either. But she says she's treated like a lab rat. 
they treat her like basically a farm animal. I'm like, well, they healed you, right? She says, yeah, but it's just equipment maintenance. It's how she feels about it. So it reminds me that, you know, these guys aren't necessarily, you know, our happy-go-lucky friends. Do you think do you think her story is um an example of all contact or uh, a subset of contact? A subset. Mm-hmm. You know and it, you know what I find is that you have this bell curve. You know some people are very frightful of their experiences and some are accepting. Some people have reason to be, you know, upset. Their experiences are a little more intense than others. And she's kind of on one end of the bell curve there in terms of how often she's taken and all the experiments they're doing on her. But, you know, she's also lucky in that these guys actually talk to her and answer pretty much all her questions. They told her, she asked where they're from. And they said, well, we're very far away. And she's like, well, where? I said, well, we're from the other side of the Andromeda galaxy. Well, that is far away. Uh, So, yeah, I mean... In some ways, she's a typical case. In some ways, she's not. I mean, her case. So I just don't know quite what to make of it, but boy, oh boy, she's got a lot of information about this subject, that's for sure. We humans always try to find reason behind the the good and the bad and the ugly. And I'm sure, my friend, you've heard that theory that a person gave their permission before they incarnated to be involved in this project, um, the length and depth and breadth we don't understand, but the fact that they gave their permission, they just can't remember it. Um, laughingly, I remember yeah. what the late Bud Hopkins said. He said, well, if you go along with that, then you must have forgotten that <laughs> before you were incarnated, you also agreed to give me all your money that you would make, so <laughs> fork it over. You just forgot. <laughs> I mean, that's... I mean, I think that's true on some level, but, you know, we all agree before we're born to be born with the family we're born in, you know, and go through certain experiences. So I think on that level, yeah, I mean, we've all agreed to come to Earth. But a contract you've made uh, before you were incarnated, I don't think you can hold a person to that because it's a completely different environment here. Mm-hmm. And unless that person actually remember that I don't think it's a valid contract I, I'm, I'm thinking about the implications of something you said that just kind of quizzed by but they came from the other side of the Andromeda galaxy now thinking of the immense immense distances involved and billions and billions of stars and solar systems between us and where they came from, why did they end up on our little speck of dust? That's interesting. No, that's exactly what I thought. I'm like, what, are there no humans between us and Andromeda? <laughs> yeah. We, we are it, and how did you ever find us? And that, that, I don't think I believe that. Um, yeah. They're always evasive about where they come from. They give sometimes ridiculous answers. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's... Hmm, not sure I believe it. It's yeah, just I'm, a little. I'm with. I'm kind of with you there on that. That's just that's too far out. <laughs> it's too out there. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> I've, I've heard. I've heard people in terms of trying to set up 
defenses, if you will, that range from, as weird as it sounds, covering their walls and windows on the inside with tinfoil mm-hmm. to yeah, uh, I've heard that. having um, uh, electromagnetic spectrum detectors that um, will beep <laughs> if there's a rise in, in energy taking place, maybe some forewarning that there's going to be a mm-hmm. contact experience. Um, motion uh, detector cameras inside and out. Um, large German, sh- large German shepherds. Um, mm-hmm. Does any of that stuff seem to work? No, not that I. It's never worked. I don't have a single case. People put like uh, baby powder all over the floor, trying to catch their footprints. They mm-hmm. hung dishes around their bed, you know, glasses and filled with water and just everything you can possibly imagine to try and stop these guys. And, uh, you know, she's, she'll, she'll wake up, this lady Annie, and they'll be around her bed. She's like, you're not taking me, not this time. And they're surprised. They're like, why? I mean, why are you resisting? Normally you don't resist. She says, I'm resisting now. I don't want to go. She says, well, you have to go. We still need you. We came all this way. <laughs> Resistance is futile. And, and, and they'll, she tries to reason with them, but they're like, no. And she argued with them about their emotions. And they kind of apologized and says, well, we, we bred our emotions out of us. And uh, that was a mistake, um, is what they told her. And they're trying, trying to return them back into them. She has one ET that she likes. He's, he's got bright blue eyes. And he says, I'm your protector. Says, I'm a part of you, and I come from you. And she's like, "Well, great." You know, and she knows what that means. So, Preston, and, we've uh, we've got so much more we can talk about. We've got a we've got to stop here. Let me pose this to you. We've got uh, July 28th and August 25th. Both of those are open. How would you like to come back on and just have an extension of this conversation? Hey, that'd be great. Okay, you, uh, July 28th or August 25th, and I'll get back to you about which one you want to pick there, okay? Awesome. Because yeah, there's so much more we can talk about, but unfortunately we got to go. So uh, Preston Dennett, you can find him through your favorite search engine. It's amazing how he gets that, that placement. It's PrestonDennett.Weebly.com. Just type in Preston Dennett, he'll pop right up. My friend, it's always so good to talk with you. The stories are always so interesting. Hey, I appreciate it. It's 100 degrees here, by the way. 110 it's going to get today. Wow. Wow. I'm going to go into my air-conditioned room and stay there. (laughs) That's a great plan. Okay, Uh, Preston, thanks so much for being out there. And we'll look forward to that full main guest segment with you where we can take this conversation farther. I'm Scott Colborn, and you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. That'll be fun to have him back yeah. on for a, a whole show. You raised a great question, Jim. I mean, if we're talking about that length in a linear sense, um, why us and how did they find us? Yeah. Do they have some sort of a directory assistance? You know, where's I mean, the nearest human? You know, that, a lot of people probably don't have any concept of the, the distances involved, but it's it's huge. I mean... It would be uh, like going to Tokyo for a jug of milk. 
Let's uh, magnify that by a billion times. We'll have you think about that. Yeah. While we take this break, we'll be right back with Jim and Colleen and Scott and our main guest, Mark Nesbitt. We're talking about the ghosts of Gettysburg today. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from Eagle Printing and Sign at 14th and N in downtown Lincoln. In business for over 20 years, Eagle offers a variety of printing services for first-time customers to long-time professionals, plus creative and design services. More at 402-476-8156 and eagleprintingandsign.com. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And the Nebraska Recycling Council, helping to protect the natural environment and extend the life of our landfill. Reminding Lincoln and Lancaster County that corrugated cardboard will not be accepted at the landfill. For more on recycling services and area drop-off sites, nrcne.org or 402-436-2384. And by... The Zoo Bar, celebrating 45 years with ZooFest. Two days of live music outdoors at 14th and O, Friday and Saturday, July 6th and 7th. With Nikki Hill, Lil Ed and the Blues Imperials, Dale Watson, Hector Anchando, Josh Hoyer and Soul Colossal, and more. Tickets at ZooBar.com. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping big brothers, big sisters help a child. Start something today at bigbrothersbigsisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And with us is Mark Nesbitt. Mark is an author of a number of books and a historian of the Civil War. He's made uh, his home in the Gettysburg area, I think for over uh, 30 years now. And that certainly gives him a uh, really unique perspective on goings on in and around Gettysburg. 
we've got a little bit of a phone situation going on here, and I'll try to get that. There we go. Now it's working. <laughs> Mark, I couldn't bring your fader control up for some reason. The, the board wasn't letting me put you on the air, but now we've got you. Mark Nesbitt, it's great, great to talk with you again, sir. Thank you, Scott. Good talking to you, too, again. And I know that you've been uh, busy as can be for the last couple of weeks. Uh, does it ever slow down for you? Well, in Gettysburg, um, we have a, a season. You know, it's, it's the off-season by the beginning of December, and then that goes for a couple, three months until uh, probably beginning of March. So, you know, that's kind of, but, you know, I'm writing. So that, that takes up my time, even especially during the off-season, because I have more time to, to do it. But, um the, uh, but of course, this is a, this is the best time in Gettysburg. You know, if anybody wants to visit or you want to see all the programs um, up and running, as we just had, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, we just had our battle anniversary, the 155th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg was July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, followed up, of course, by the 4th of July, and so the weekend before and the weekend after, since since the 4th of July landed on Wednesday. The weekend before and the week after have always been really, really busy, and uh, this uh, this year was no exception. A lot of people have been been planning for uh, a year to to, uh, to to show off their wares so mm-hmm. here in Gettysburg. So it's been an exciting time. If if my daughter and son and I were to drive there, uh, as uh, people interested in in Gettysburg and the in the battle, uh, how many? How many days should I plan to spend there to really to to do it well? Well, you can you can do it in a long weekend. You know what I mean. If you, but if you're coming all the way from Nebraska, you may want to spend a week here because uh, it's going to take a couple of days to drive. If you fly though, you can always fly into Washington or Baltimore or, or Harrisburg. But um, I, to see everything in in Gettysburg at a fairly leisurely pace, so you don't wear yourself out, I'd say about. About three or four days, okay. but the problem is, is once you start seeing what's going on here and the things that are here to see and all the little obscure things and places you want to visit, it, you know you're going to want to come back. So it's it, 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 four days will do it, but you'll probably schedule another visit. It, Mark, you uh, were originally a park ranger, and I understand. Did you actually do your service there at Gettysburg? That is correct. I spent six years here working as a as a park ranger, and then uh, I was a licensed battlefield guide for a year. Uh, so I, I, I was inundated pretty much when I first got here with the uh, battle and all the all the exciting things. In fact, that's where the ghost books actually started mm-hmm. from the genesis of the ghost books. And I've got a list here of all the books that you've written um, of Gettysburg and other. Uh, battles and events in the Civil War. Uh, can we give, from a historical point of view, a thumbnail sketch of the background about the uh, Gettysburg engagement from July 1st through the 3rd, 1863? Why sure. Why did it take place? Well, it, it, Gettysburg was... A- it took place about in the middle of the American Civil War, and it was the the culmination of the second Confederate Southern invasion of the North. 
the Robert E. Lee's army was stopped here because they were actually, that whole summer of 1863, all the month of June, they were um, marching northward. By the time they got in the vicinity of Gettysburg, the end of June, the Confederate army had actually spread out. They'd gone um, about 30 miles uh, east of Gettysburg to York and maybe the worst, on their way to Philadelphia. And maybe the worst thing is that they had they had gone up to the Susquehanna River north of Gettysburg and were overlooking the the capital of Pennsylvania. So the threat was was huge by the time July first rolls around. Um, the battle then on July first was actually kind of an, an accident. The two armies, you know, of course you have two huge armies uh, basically looking for each other uh, in in an area where it's crisscrossed by roads. They're going to bump into each other. Somewhere, and if you look at a map, you see that Gettysburg. There are about ten or eleven roads radiate out. So the Battle of Gettysburg was actually an accident uh, when, it, at least, the beginning. And um, on the first day's battle, July first, eighteen sixty-three, the Confederates actually won. Most of the fighting took place north, west, and east of town, and. Uh, uh, it ended with the Confederates about 3 in the afternoon driving the Union troops through the town of Gettysburg and following them, driving them inadvertently to the high ground south of Gettysburg. And many historians agree that this was probably the, the, the major factor in the Union victory here. So on the on the second then, the second day of the battle, you had the Confederates, uh, the Union troops, on the high ground, concentrated south of Gettysburg in the in the shape of a fish hook. Okay, their line was a fish hook. Confederate line outlined that, and when Robert E. Lee, the Confederate uh, commander, saw the shape of that Union line, he decided to attack both ends simultaneously to occupy both ends so they couldn't support each other. Unfortunately, it didn't. It wasn't simultaneous. There were some foul-ups, needless to say, because of the lack of Communicate, you know, good communication, no radios or anything to coordinate things. And the attacks on the southern end of the of the battlefield, which would be Little Round Top, Devil's Den, the Peach Orchard, the Wheatfield, those actually ended by the time the other attack on Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill began late at night. So the two uh, attacks on the ends of the Union line basically failed. So Lee decided that if they were strong, if the Union troops were strong on both ends, they had to be weak in the center. And, of course, the next day, July 3rd, 1863, he launched the ill-fated Pickett's Charge, which we've all heard of, and it's basically synonymous with military failure, and which it was. It was um, an advance of about about 12,500 men across a wide-open field about nine-tenths of a mile in width. Um, they took artillery fire, some uh, 300 finally broke through the Union line, but the, only, the nearest reinforcements were the Union reinforcements, and they drove them back. So the next day, July 4th, in the pouring rain, the two armies kind of just just sat there waiting for the other one to make a, make a decision, but Robert E. Lee made it the night of July 4th and began his retreat. That They left about 51,000 casualties. Here. That is an entire football stadium, well, a small football stadium full of people that uh, were killed, were either killed, wounded, or missing, and left them to the uh, 
into the, in the town of about 2,400. That's what Gettysburg had. Every major uh, building became a hospital. Burials were all over um, the town and, and in the fields outside. So it was a pretty horrible place in the uh, uh, days and weeks following the battle. Uh, this is uh, Mark Nesbitt, and his latest book is called The Ghosts of Gettysburg, Volume 8, Spirits, Apparitions, and Haunted Places of the Battlefield. Uh, Mark has an easy-to-find website, ghostsofgettysburg.com. And I understand that in addition to your writing, there are tours that are given, and you've also got uh, a shop there in Gettysburg. That is correct, Scott. We have uh, a, uh, a building we bought about 20 years ago uh, on the corner of Baltimore and Breckenridge Street, a main drag, Baltimore Street in Gettysburg. And uh, we bought it specifically to run our ghost tours out of. We had we started ghost tours in Gettysburg uh, in 1994 and have been running them ever since uh, throughout the busy season. So uh, when you do come to Gettysburg, please take one of our tours. As you can tell, I'm kind of a history buff. Oh, yeah. So the tours are, are based. Pardon me? I, I absolutely love it. Yeah, the tours are based on history. In other words, the guides will take you to a site, tell you a bit about the history of the site, then tell you the ghost stories associated with it, which I think makes a lot more sense when you know what the history is. Mm-hmm. Well, we've, we've laid kind of the, the basis here for uh, Gettysburg. Uh, Gettysburg was an intersection of 10 or more roads. Uh, literally all roads lead to Gettysburg. And that worked to bring both of these armies together. Um, the armies also used those roads during the conflict to be able to supply different parts of the battlefield to run reinforcements, ammunition, food, etc. Um, watching some of the video last night uh, on the first day's battle, a, a lot of people have put more emphasis on the second and third day, uh, but it's, it's felt by many people that there was a judgment call that the Confederates made at the close of battle on the first day that had they made a different call it might have been a totally different <clears throat> engagement. Um, I think that they uh, had held off from pursuing the, um, the Union, and had they not done that and followed through, uh, would it have resulted in a different, di- different battlefield and engagement? Well, Scott, that's a good question, and what you're talking about is, is uh, Lee's order to General Ewell on the uh, night of the uh, first day to continue his assault. They'd just driven the Union troops from their positions. The Union troops were tired. They were confused. They were disorganized. They were thirsty. They were hungry. They'd been fighting all day. They're also and outnumbered, the, too, at that point, aren't they? Definitely, yes. Absolutely. They're outnumbered. Uh, Confederates were, were, were high with victory. And, um, and, he, and Lee order, issued the order to attack if practicable, which is not really a good military order, but he, he was used to ordering Stonewall Jackson, who had commanded Ewell's Corps just before 
the, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, Jackson was mortally wounded and died after the Battle of Chancellorsville, just before Gettysburg. With Jackson, it would you know he'd have just kept going. And so when Lee basically suggested that Ewell continue, it wasn't strong enough. And Ewell hesitated. He may have had good reasons. His men were pretty disorganized too, but he did not attack the disorganized Union troops who had not had did not have time to dig in or anything. And so it could have resulted in a complete route driving the Union troops back into Maryland and, and basically confusing the troops that were on their way up. Mm-hmm. So. But because the decision was made by Ewell to, to not follow through, it allowed the Union troops on higher ground to dig in and to, uh, uh, they had hoped, of course, to wait for reinforcements they believed were coming. Um, you, you that's wonder. That's correct. And you, you hit the nail right on the head when you said dig in. Because that's all the Confederates heard all that night and all the morning of the next day is picks and shovels. And they knew what it was like to assault an enemy in an in a entrenched position, and it was not pleasant. Mm hmm. This is Mark Nesbitt and his brand new book, Ghosts of Gettysburg, Volume 8, Spirits, Apparitions, and Haunted Places of the Battlefield. When you were a park ranger, did you begin hearing, either from other rangers or from civilians spending time at the monument, did you start hearing ghost stories, or had you already heard some ghost stories? Well, I... You know, I was a tourist here before I was a ranger, and so as a teenager, I, you know, I'd meet kids from here and and ask them, you know, are there any ghosts at Gettysburg? And and I heard a couple of couple of ghost stories, but it was when I was a park ranger here that that I actually um, started hearing some things and actually experiencing experiencing some things, and that's what really kind of got the little mouse on the wheel in my head, you know, to get it spinning and thinking maybe there's something to collect here. Can you share one of those experiences in, with us? I'm sorry? Uh, Mark, can you share Go one ahead. of those experiences with us? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I was um, I lived in the National Cemetery Lodge, which is the big brick building right in the inside the National Cemetery there, among other houses, but this particular one sticks out in my mind and it was I was remember it was afternoon and I was uh, taking my lunch from my dirty dishes from the dining room into the kitchen and uh, just a regular, normal afternoon in the daylight, and all of a sudden I heard what sounded like a baby crying. And I stopped, and I'm like, what in the heck was that? Was that, you know, and you, you, I, I, like anyone else, I'm trying to rationalize what it was, you know, the house settling, the pipes screaming, squeaking, uh, squeaking, and I'm like, no, 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 that was a baby crying that I heard. So, uh, apparently, sometime in the in the next day or two, I was in the coffee room and I mentioned it to to my uh, colleagues there, and they said, "Wait, you need to talk to Mrs. Such and Such, who lived there before you." So I got in touch with her and I asked her, and she said she had heard a baby crying several times in that house. Um, so it it, it 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 piqued my interest then, but then later on, of course, I realized that the famous Gettysburg Orphanage was just a couple doors down from where the cemetery lodge was. And the second matron that they had there was a cruel matron, and she used to make the kids, you know, cry and, and 
leave them out in the cold and things like that. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden I said, you know, I'm going to start writing these things down. So I wrote that wow. one down, and I started asking some of the older park rangers, and, and sure enough, we did have people that came in, tourists that came in, and told us their stories. So I wrote I wrote all those down, and really it took 10 or 12 years before I got around to publishing those. But within two weeks after the first book came out, I started getting letters, phone calls, and faxes. From, this is before Twitter or, or, or email or anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a uh, it was astounding how many letters I got. Well, we're up to volume eight, so that that tells you that we had I got a a lot of letters and and and, and um, stories from people who visited. Never had a, never had an experience before. Mm-hmm. When we come back from the top of the hour break, um, let's talk about a, a definition of a ghost or a spirit, and why you believe based upon your own experiences and the, the hundreds of stories that you've been uh, allowed to, to uh, have access to, why there is so much activity there at the yeah, website and looked at the shop. Uh, that information is at ghostsofgettysburg.com. And uh, Jim, I'm holding up my, my format page here, and I'm pointing here to the lists of books. Mm-hmm. And it that, continues seven? on to the the next page here. Uh, and more. Uh, so, wow, um, Mr. Nesbitt, besides the eight volumes now of Ghosts of Gettysburg, um, The Ghost Hunter's Field Guide to Gettysburg and Beyond, Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, The Ghost Hunter's Field Guide to Civil War Battlefields, Civil War Ghost Trails, Kirsten, Virginia, Saber and Scapegoat, J period, E period, B period, Stewart, Jeb Stewart, and the Gettysburg Controversy. Uh, 35 Days to Gettysburg, the Campaign Diaries of Two American Enemies. Through Blood and Fire, Selected Civil War Papers of Major General Joshua Chamberlain. If the South Won Gettysburg. Blood and Ghosts, Paranormal Forensic Investigators, with uh, co-author Catherine Ramsland. Haunted Crime Scenes, Paranormal Evidence from Crimes and Criminals Across the USA, again with Catherine Ramsland. And Haunted Pennsylvania with co-author Patty Wilson. I haven't even turned the page yet. You just did. So that is... <laughs> That's a lot of books. Oh, I, I am so... That's awesome. So envious, of Mark, of your, uh, of your ability as an author. And again, I'm, this is like a kid for me in a candy store. Mark, I uh, grew up with a fascination of the Civil War, with Gettysburg in particular, and I may have remarked to you on our program we did just about a year ago that when I was a younger kid, around 10 to 12, I had read every book I could on the battle. I knew all the troop deployments. I knew the generals, the, the uh, upper echelon uh, people. I knew all the, the stuff. I've forgotten a lot of that, so this is just so fun for me and uh, Great. I, re- I really appreciate you taking time for about a busy weekend so st- mark stay right there we'll take our top of the hour break we'll be right back again folks go to ghostsofgettysburg.com it's all right there the author and historian mark nesbitt is our guest this morning and wait until you hear some of the stories coming up here With Colleen and Jim, 
and myself, you guys and gals, and Mark Nesbitt, we are exploring unexplained phenomena. We'll be right back. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln, offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. And the Bourbon Theater presenting the live flamenco music and dance of Corazon de Granada on Thursday, July 19th at 8 p.m. Tickets available now at the box office and bourbontheater.com. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping big brothers, big sisters help a child. Start something today at bigbrothersbigsisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Our guest next week is the ufologist Peter Robbins, and uh, always look forward to taking advantage of Peter's uh, depth and breadth of knowledge in the field of UFOs and ETs, and it should be a great program with special guest Peter Robbins next week. And folks, like I say, I am just a kid in a candy store today. I am delighted to be able to have Mark Nesbitt on the program to talk about one of my favorite areas of interest. Um, and uh, it's very odd because uh, had it turned out differently for 
George Armstrong Custer at the Civil War, we may not have had the Little Bighorn Custer's last stand. Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's true. The um, you know he was just a young, uh, uh, one of the youngest brigadier generals ever in the uh, in the army, and he was twenty four years old here at Gettysburg. Not only that, before the Battle of Gettysburg, he did some pretty risky things. Here he led a charge straight at Jeb Stuart and his cavalry, and then of course later on in the war he did some some pretty crazy things. It's almost as if fate was was teeing him up, you know, mm-hmm. for uh, a death mm-hmm. somewhere out in the, you know the Black Hills in uh, 1876. You know, several years after the the Civil War, but. Uh, yeah, he, t- he took a lot of chances here and was at Gettysburg. A lot of people don't realize that, but he commanded Michigan troops here. Was he sort of the Union version of Jeb Stewart? Oh, you know, I never thought of it that way, but Scott, you're right. I, you know, he was very, very flamboyant and, uh, you know, wore a red neckerchief. Of course, this is after he got became a, a brigadier general because he was kind of, he was known for being kind of slovenly when he first when he was first in, in command, you know, one of the guys who had his hair long. and that, But then once he became a, a general, he was he started wearing this red neckerchief and this fancy velvet suit. And <laughs> his planet to the hills when he, when he became a, a brigadier general. But, um, and, and, of course, Stewart himself was, was and he said it in, his, in, his, um, in letters to his uh, brother. He said, you know, we, we, are, we can't possibly, as a cavalry unit or as an army, uh, go go man for man against the Union Army because they have far more resources. So he said, I, I intend to inculcate my men with the spirit of the chase. In other words, I'm going to be more flamboyant than they are and make them very proud to be in the Confederate cavalry, which he did until he was he was uh, mortally wounded at Yellow Tavern in uh, 1864. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get back now to one of the huge questions that perplexes all of us. Um, Ghosts and spirits, are they the same? And why are there ghosts and or spirits in such a concentration at Gettysburg? Well, you know, this is interesting because I just did one of my talks, a speech, uh, this past week. Uh, And the, and the, the, the title of the speech is Ghosts of Gettysburg, the evidence. Mm-hmm. So I, one of the things I do is I, I tell people what ghosts are, so we're all on the same page. And um, the definitions I use, I use two definitions. One is, is kind of like a, an age-old definition. It says a ghost uh, is, a, is a disembodied soul, which after the life of its body is over, goes on to live in existence apart from the visible world. And that actually says a lot to toward what what ghosts are it's and also what we are it it is the dualist uh philosophy that we are more than just a living breathing body that we contain a spirit as well a vital spark and um that goes on after this body dies it it continues to live in existence in a world that is not visible to us which means it could be right here, right next to us, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't be able to see it. Maybe like another dimension or another universe, 
you know, or one of these multiverses that uh, science likes to talk about. Now, the interesting part is, to add to that, I usually use another definition. Hans Holzer is one of the foremost um, ghost hunters, uh, early ghost hunters in the United States. He just died not too long ago. He His definition has a little bit of a sinister twist. He said ghosts are the surviving mental faculties of people who died traumatically. So it's not enough just to die. It kind of has to be a, an, an awful, awful death. And if you look at uh, really almost any soldiers who are, who are killed in battle, but in particular in the American Civil War, they died very, not very pleasant death. It's not like, you know, lying in bed at home and dying. They were in, in faraway places, away from their families, horribly wounded, often in a situation where they were in, in incredible agony. And uh, so... If anyone died a, a traumatic death, it would have been the soldiers who died here at Gettysburg. And uh, for those that were were wounded, the triage centers or field hospitals uh, were working overtime. Some of those doctors and nurses uh, didn't sleep for two or three days. They they literally couldn't keep up with uh, the influx of, of soldiers who'd been shot from both sides. Uh, so trying to sustain the men on the battlefield with food, water, supplies, ammunition, as well as trying to take care of those that are wounded um, was a, a, a really huge test at Gettysburg. You had so many men, I, I, I used to know this, but if you figured out the, the length of, of the full engagement mark from July 1st to July 3rd, from first to last shots, how many hours that was, and then um, figured out the total casualties, how many people were being killed or shot or maimed per minute is just staggering. Well, you and I are on the same uh, page here, Scott, because i that's the second page of my, my speech. And I, if you take the figure of 51,000 casualties, now, yeah, there, there was it was a three-day battle, but if you add up all the hours, they fought about 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And if you do a little simple division, you find out that's men that are struck by lead or iron, either artillery or infantry fire, that's about... 2,125 per hour being struck, which equals 35 per minute, which is approximately one man every two seconds for 24 hours being being struck by uh, either killed or wounded by flying uh, metal. So, I mean, you can't even snap your fingers for 24 hours once every two no. seconds. It, it's just it's appalling. And once the Union troops had a chance to dig in and then had uh, partial reinforcement, it made the job of the Confederates uh, all the more daunting uh, to try to go up slopes, uh, literally a no-man's land, sometimes for the better part of a mile, without a lot of cover, to fortified positions uh, 
I've thought about being one of those Confederate guys, knowing that you were going to go out there and what that must have been like. Wow. Yeah, well, you know, it was, you you just marched all this way, you know, all through the month of June to get here. You probably fought the battle uh, before, you know, the day before. And then on July 2nd here, you're going into battle again. Some of the units were fresh. Most of them at least had marched up here, so they were kind of tired. But you're right, and it was a change in, um, basically a change in military tactics, because if, if you read anything, I'm sure you're aware of it. Battle of First Manassas, I mean, that was a stand-up fight. They just stood out there and fired away at each other and tried to maneuver their way to victory. Um, and that just gradually did the uh, armies determine and realize that when your enemy was dug in, if you gave them any time to dig in, that was not a very good position for you to be in to have to attack uh, uh, fortified, dug-in positions. And uh, as we mentioned before, the, the fighting on Culp's Hill, the Confederates gave the Union Army all night on July 1st and all morning and most of the afternoon to dig in. And those trenches are still there. You can go and, I mean, they're not, they're, they're grown over with grass, filled in a little bit. If you can still see the line of trenches, especially in the fall or winter, when the, uh, uh, when the leaves are down and everything, you can see the, the trenches around Culp's Hill pretty clearly. I mean, after 155 years. So they had pretty formidable trenches that they dug, and the Confederates, of course, had to attack those, and it obviously was unsuccessful. What what would have happened if, uh, <clears throat> instead of trying to engage the Union Army in their entrenched, fortified positions, if the Confederates would have just simply said, um, we're going to leave a small contingent force here to keep them in place, but we know that there's another group coming. Uh, we're going to leave the area and go find them. Well, you know, the, the one of the theories that, that, that Longstreet, as a matter of fact, one of Lee's, uh, basically his second-in-command here at Gettysburg, one of the things that he proposed is, look, we have the Union Army in a compact position. Right. And we have them basically with their back to... Washington, D.C., if we do a quick march and uh, maybe a nighttime march and get around south of them, then we could uh, perhaps have them attack us while we're dug in. And if they're if they fail, then, you know, we're between them and their capital. And and that's not a pleasant position that any politician wants to be in. Yep. (laughs) Uh, this is Mark. So that, Nis- was a, that was a, a, an idea. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Mark Nesbitt's got the brand new book that was just released the first of July: "Ghosts of Gettysburg, Volume Eight: Spirits, Apparitions, and Haunted Places of the Battlefield." Um, my question has nothing to do with political alliances of the North or the South. Uh, is there an even number of? ghosts for both the Union as well as the Confederate troops? Uh, have you found that, that it's an equal assortment, or are there more stories from one side or the other? Once again, that's a 
good question, Scott, because I gotta I gotta put on my thinking cap here, but I think it's pretty even. I've gotten uh, evidence from both Union and Confederate soldiers. Um, it it's it often it often depends on what the venue is. If you're doing a paranormal investigation, of course, uh, who's going to answer you? We we have uh, Confederates that that were in our building, actually housed in our building mm-hmm. here, and we have made contact with them. Um, but I also have a lot of stories about Union soldiers as well, depending on, what you know, once again, what side of the battlefield uh, you're on. Uh, in, on on top of Culp's Hill, there I have stories about Union soldiers being seen and being heard. I have several stories of people seeing um, soldiers in, in dark uniforms, meaning probably meaning Union rather than the light-colored Confederate uniform. So I'm, I'm going to make a, a crazy call and say it's, it's pretty much even. I don't think there's more of one than the other, and at least in my collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, having been a park ranger and since that time collecting so many stories, uh, help me with a rumor that I've heard. Uh, I don't know if it's substantiated, Mark, or unsubstantiated, but the rumor I've heard is that people going to the monument, spending time on the various parts of the battlefield, have told rangers at one of the centers that they were uh, walking part of the battlefield and they were observing um, a reenactment and really enjoyed standing back and watching the Union and Confederate troops go through reenactment. And to have the park rangers say, at that part of the monument, there were no reenactors on the field today. Is, is there any credence to that, or is that a, a legend that's grown up around all the, the activity there? Well, that sounds very much like the original story I heard from other rangers. So I, 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 that I, I, when I wrote about it in my first book, I kind of believe it was a legend. And that, that, the way you said it was, was very correct. Um, but since then, I probably have about four or five other accounts of what we've we've come to call the Phantom Regiment or the Phantom Battalion, the um, the most recent, which I think is the most interesting, is from a woman and her son who had gone out on the battlefield uh, early in the morning, about six o'clock. They just turned onto the battlefield off the Emmitsburg Road and went past the peach orchard and came to an area just to the west of the wheat field, an open area, and they looked out and they saw a. A unit. I, I can't recall whether it was Union or Confederate, but it was a, a unit of soldiers marching and maneuvering out in the open fields in the in the pre-dawn or uh, in the in the, in the dawn uh, hours. Mm-hmm. And even their dog in the back seat was had seen it and was growling. And I think this is important later on. I'll tell you why. But um, so the three of them all saw this unit. A couple of joggers came up over the hill. And as soon as these joggers came by, the entire unit just disappeared, just vanished before their eyes. And they were like, and the dog stopped prowling. And I'm like, and the person is like saying, what was that? What did we just see? Now, the, I'm thinking that the dog growling is very important because when human beings see an apparition, we have all this baggage. We're trying to say, well, you know, it was maybe something under my contact lens, <laughs> my imagination, a little too much to drink last night, whatever. The dog, the dogs do not 
have those excuses. They just they just alert mm-hmm. to something that they're confused about, and they want to know: Do I have to protect my my people? And so I think that's what this this dog was doing, and that indicates to me that what they saw out in the field was real. This is Mark Nesbitt. Uh, his brand new book, Ghosts of Gettysburg, Volume Eight. Spirits, Apparitions, and Haunted Places of the Battlefield just got released the 1st of July. His website, uh, very interactive. You'll want to bookmark this. The Ghosts, excuse me, ghostsofgettysburg.com. There is no the. It's just ghostsofgettysburg.com. Um, Jim, uh, off mic here, was saying that uh, because of all the stuff the ordinance being fired, the uh, the relics from the soldiers, from the wagons, from the campsites, that there's still stuff being found 155 years later. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and we know there's still stuff out there because it still surfaces periodically. Of course, it's illegal to go out with a metal detector on the battlefield and, and, and be proactive and try and find the stuff because, um, that, that, well, it's illegal. Don't, don't, that's bad. That's that's like murder one. Yeah, they they <laughs> take they, a metal detector they don't there. want people going out there with spades and shovels and digging up the the battlefield. No, you can imagine what the place would look like if they did. No, but um, as far as as relics, yes. People will still see, usually after it rains real hard, sometimes they'll pick up a, a mini ball that's washed washed loose. And um, the other interesting thing is when I was a park ranger, people would ask us all the time, did they get all the bodies? And we would we asked, finally asked our bosses what you would tell them, and they said, yeah, tell them they got all the bodies. Well, a friend of mine, um, Greg Coco, wrote a book on the, on the casualties and the burials of the... Uh, especially the Confederates, because he was from Louisiana, and and he he and the other historian at uh, at Gettys, one of the other historians at Gettysburg, came to the conclusion that you know when you compare the figures of the number of Confederates from the regiments that were were killed, and compare that with the ones that were exhumed, the bodies that were taken up in the 1870s, you realize that there's anywhere from 600 to 1,200 or so that are completely missing out of that, um, out of those figures. Not only that, I mean, the, the evidence is there that periodically, especially over the last few years, the most recent one was 1997, bodies are are found. Now, they're not, obviously, they're, they're just remain uh, bones and bits of cloth, uniform, and that type of thing. But they still, they still, um, they still come to the surface periodically, and people will We'll discover them and report them to the uh, National Park Service. So not only are there relics and artifacts that are still emerging from the, the battlefield, but also uh, human remains. If, if this Nebraska kid, who's got a great deal of interest in uh, the Gettysburg Monument and the, the engagement there, if I were to travel there, uh, and I'm a guy that that doesn't mind cold at all. Would it be good to go sometime in the fall? Oh, absolutely. I, in fact, when people ask me, I, this is kind of like the insider's dope on uh, when to come to Gettysburg. 
some of the best times, believe it or not, are the are the uh, first couple of weeks in June, because you're over the Memorial Day mm-hmm. holiday. You're, you haven't come up against the Fourth of July holiday yet, which gets that's when the season really starts. But everything's still open, you know, you all the restaurants and, and museums and everything. So the first first three weeks in June are great. Um, not a lot of not a lot of visitation because you know kids are still getting out of school and. And uh, the parents are still arranging their vacations and stuff. And the other good time would be the uh, uh, first, uh, well, the month of September, basically, because you're past the Labor Day weekend, not quite into October yet. And um, that's always a good time to, to visit as well. Once again, everything's open and kids are getting back in school, so parents are worried about that. I would, I, you know, I, don't, I never want to tell you to avoid Gettysburg because it's always great. But um, October gets really, really, really busy between all the events in the college and the Apple Harvest Festival, because north of Gettysburg is a, it's all apple orchards. And uh, Gettysburg College has, you know, Parents Weekend, uh, alumni get-togethers and everything. Not to mention the visitors that come in just to, just for the foliage and to take ghost tours in October, because they're, they're always uh, fun. In uh, in the fall, how about early so November? Two, early November was okay too. Um, whenever the nineteenth of November, the nearest weekend, that's one of our busiest weekends because it's it's called Remembrance Day. Okay, it's the anniversary of Abraham Lincoln dedicating, you know, getting the Gettysburg Address and dedicating the National Cemetery. It's going to be hard to find a um, a hotel room in Gettysburg during that time period. Mm-hmm. So I would say you can, yeah. November's good, but it's it's uh, uh, avoid that weekend if you can, unless you want to participate in some of the activities. Then make your make your plans real early, like now. <laughs> Go for a reservation now. Uh, after this uh, bottom of the hour break here, uh, Mark, take us through one of your last um, outings where you took people out to part of the battlefield, either day or night. Um, and uh, tell us what happened. Okay. This is Mark Nesbitt, and I'm having folks so much fun. I'm sure glad to have you out there. Hopefully you're finding this as interesting as, as Jim and Colleen and I are. Mark Nesbitt is the author of a multitude of books. He's a historian of the Civil War, and more specifically also of the Gettysburg Engagement. July 1st through July 3rd, 1863, 155 years ago. The brand new book that just got released July 1st is Ghosts of Gettysburg, Volume 8, Spirits, Apparitions, and Haunted Places of the Battlefield. (coughs) Excuse me. His website is easy to find, ghostsofgettysburg.com. With Jim and Colleen, I'm Scott Colborne, and you guys and gals... Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this.
Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for This Week in Lincoln comes from the Bourbon Theater, Duffy's Tavern, The Bay, and The Zoo Bar. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. Saturday, July 7th, brings Cuddlebone and Ghost Town Radio to the Bourbon Theater for a 9 o'clock show. And Zoo Fest begins at 1 p.m. in front of the Zoo Bar with Blues Ed, followed by Hector Onchando, the Red Elvises, Dale Watson, Tommy Castro and the Painkillers, and Nikki Hill. That's what's happening this week in Lincoln. KZUM's free summer concert series at Stransky Park continues this Thursday at 7 p.m. with a very special evening of live bluegrass with the Toasted Ponies and Southpaw Bluegrass Band. This season marks the 15th year of free music at Stransky Park at 17th and Harrison with performances every Thursday through August 9th. Brought to you with support from Dietz Music, Rabble Mill, the Lincoln Arts Council, Ogstums Printing, and Bryan Health. Find out more at kzum.org. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborne with Jim and Colleen. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. Our guest next week is Peter Robbins, the well-known ufologist, and looking forward to the conversation with Peter again. We've been talking with Mark Nesbitt, and Mark is a historian of the Civil War and lives and owns a shop in Gettysburg and is a recognized expert on the Battle of Gettysburg, July 1st through the 3rd, 1863, and has written a number of paranormal books on what people have reported in and around uh, the Gettysburg battlefield. Mark, I've asked you uh, to imagine that you're leading all of us as a group out someplace on the battlefield to kind of recount maybe what you did with uh, one of the last groups and what they experienced. And so tell us more. Well, you know, when we were, I was thinking about all the different, you know, there, there have been quite a few times that this has happened, but I think maybe the most impressive um, times that I've had personally would be the times I've done investigations out at a place called the Daniel Lady Farm. Now, Lady Farm uh, was is not part of the battlefield. Once again, if it, you, you can't go out there after 10 o'clock, and cannot go out there after 10 o'clock at night because the park is closed, so you can't do any paranormal investigating out there then. But the Daniel Lady Farm is privately owned by a nonprofit organization. It was a hospital, a Confederate hospital, at the time of the battle. In fact, there are... Stains, blood stains on 
the floor of the front room there, the southern exposed room. And so we've kind of assumed that that is the, um, the operating room. But a number of things have happened to me out there when I was with groups. Uh, one group was in a, doing a, a circle and, 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 and getting impressions, and I felt a, uh, felt a hand uh, uh, pull on my sleeve. I was in short sleeve, and about three or four tugs, and I looked around. I thought, well, somebody was behind me. No one was there. I looked off into the woods later on and saw uh, someone standing there in red pants. Now, red pants often signifies a zouave, you know, or perhaps someone in artillery because that was their trim. And when they finished their, their get-together, I said, was everyone here? And they said, yeah, we we're all here. Um, is anyone wearing red pants in your group? And they, they're like, no. But maybe the weirdest thing that happened to me in my entire career of this was at the lady farm where I got a call from the caretaker. And he said, Mark, if you want to see a paranormal experience happening right now, come on out to the lady farm. Well, who can, you know, who can pass that up? I threw all the gear in the, in the van and went out. And I had my video camera going when I walked in the door and he said, you know, we had some reenactors here yesterday. This place was clean. Uh, 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 it was spin and span because we wanted to impress these guys. And then this morning when we came in, we found this. And he opened the door to the operating room and there on the floor were four or five long Streams of a rust-colored liquid, and there was um, like a um, clear serum separating itself from it, and drops of this liquid all over with that looked like they were starting to crystallize. And I said to him, and I looked at the ceiling, and there was you know it was white and whitewashed, and so nothing had dripped down. I said, did any pipes break in the basement? He said, nope, this just appeared. And I'm videotaping the whole time. I said, well, let me take some pictures. So I got some pictures, and I said, did you, do you have a, a, a tissue? And he said, yeah. So I soaked some up, and I said, I was there for about 40 minutes. I said, I, you know, I don't have an answer to this. I don't know what, what this is. He said, I don't know what to do. He said, I, right now i got to go out into the fields. I've got some work to do. So I don't know. I'll figure it out when I come back. Then I left, and about two hours later, I got a phone call from him again. He said, Mark, I just came back from out in the fields, and it's gone. I said, what? He said, it's vanished. So out I go, and once again, I can't get pictures. I walked in with my video camera going, and he was right to the spot, and it's, and it's dry, bone dry, as a matter of fact. He squats down. He said, it was right here, and he's rubbing it. It was right here, right? And he turns his hands up. He says, what the heck? And he's got a thin, thin layer of dust on his fingertips. And my wife was there. She said, I wonder about the, the, the sample that you took. I'd forgotten about it. She says, I'll run out of the car. And she came back. She says, it's still there. The sample is still there. Well, the the, the organization that, that owns the Lady Farm is very, very well connected. So they sent the sample out to one of the more prestigious uh, forensic labs in, in Pennsylvania. About three weeks later, the results came back. The liquid... The liquid itself was blood, and the species was human. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that, that was absolutely the freakiest thing, the most unexplainable thing. It was like I was in a time warp, Scott, you know? Mm-hmm. Everything was backwards. So, and once again, 
Gettysburg strikes, you know. These these uh, events that occur. Um, one of as I as I reviewed notes last night, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is that when we are spectators seeing an event take place, and let's say that we are seeing uh, one or more uh, apparitions, is it is it like we are watching a movie that's being played out? Or are the apparitions themselves, are they aware of us? Ah, well, the answer to that is yes and yes. <laughs> we, uh, those are two different types of uh, apparitions that you're talking about. The, mm-hmm. the, the first one, where it seems like a recording, like the Phantom Regiment that I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. it seems to replay over and over and over, replay itself. It doesn't really change much. It just is like a, a video that we're watching, and then for whatever reason, months or years later, it repeats itself. But the other one that you're talking about is called an interactive or intelligent haunting. And um, that is where the ghost actually acknowledges you, the living, or sometimes will even talk to you. And I have several examples of that um do you want to would you like to hear one yes please okay uh maybe the very one of the very first ghost stories i heard from gettysburg was from a uh uh, a woman that walked into our visitor center about eight o'clock in the morning and she said are there any ghosts here at gettysburg and we kind of you know we we were told by our bosses if anyone asks they know You know, a thousand stories later, I, I kind of, I, I didn't, I don't believe them anymore. But um, they, she came in and we were like, why, what happened? She said, I was at Devil's Den about six o'clock when the park first opened up. I parked in the parking lot. I was the only one there. No other cars. It was a beautiful day, so I figured I'd just get out and climb the rocks and see what was up at the top. Mm-hmm. She said, I got up to the top of the rocks and I was, I was kind of figured I'd take a picture. So I had my camera up to my eye. All of a sudden, I felt that there, I wasn't alone, even though I knew there was no one there. She said, I turned around, and there, there was a guy standing there. And he was kind of like ragged clothes, barefoot, floppy hat, shoulder-length hair. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he said, what you're looking for is over there. And he pointed over my shoulder. She said, I turned around, and I said, well, how does he know what I'm looking for? I turned back, and he was gone. Oh, wow. And there was no place for him to go. Um, and let's fast forward here now to about two years ago. This was, this was 40 years ago when, this, when I first heard this. Let's go back to about two years ago. I'm doing an autographing, and a woman walks in, and she started telling me, she says, you know, i got a ghost story. She said, I was at Devil's Den, and I'm standing there kind of looking at the flowers at my feet, and all of a sudden I look up, and there's a guy standing not three feet from me and he's kind of ragged looking i said wait stop right there you're getting this from my book right she goes i've never read your books i said well go ahead and continue and she said and he 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 looked at me and he was like ragged long hair barefoot and he he looked at me and he pointed at my sweatshirt and he said to me first texas in other words a regiment that was there and I looked down, she said, at my shirt, 
and I had my University of Texas sweatshirt on, maybe the old burnt orange with Texas across it. And I looked up, and he was gone. He, she said he was three feet from me, and he and he disappeared. Now, the weird part is, is that the first Texas, the Texans were some of the units that one of the units that took over Devil's Den, fought so hard to send the Yankees out of there, mm-hmm. and they were known for being very ragged, very some of them barefoot floppy hat, shoulder-length hair, because they were basically from the wilderness. And it was hard to get clothing and stuff from your from your home when the Confederate Army couldn't supply it. And uh, so they were they were kind of ragged uh, when they got to Gettysburg. So that those are two stories which are interesting because I mentioned both of them in Ghosts of Gettysburg, Volume 8, in a, in a chapter called Deja Vu. Things that happened years and years and years, 20, 30 years ago, that I recorded, and things that happened just recently, the same, apparently the same ghost. There is a, a trust that is interested in buying and acquiring uh, more land around Gettysburg. Um, are you a member of that? Do you support that? Um, I, I am not a member of it. I think it's talking about the Civil War Trust. Yes. Yeah, they do, they do some pretty good work, and... Uh, uh, the the whole idea behind Gettysburg for the last probably fifteen or twenty years is to make it look like it did at the time of the battle, okay? And so they're using photographs that that are as close as possible to the time of the battle. They're cutting down trees and making an open area where there was an open area. They're taking removing some of the the hotels and motels that were here uh, for years and years and years before. That's what they did at around Lee's headquarters, is that they removed this uh, 1950s hotel, motel, that was there. And so now it looks like it did at the time of the battle, very close to it. And I think they're doing a remarkable job uh, with that and many, many other battlefields, including uh, uh, some revolutionary, revolutionary war battlefields. So mm-hmm. that type of stuff, I think we have enough, we have enough buildings. I think we should preserve our battlefields. Mm-hmm. Mark, it's been a pleasure to have you here on the on the show today. Um, can people through your website, uh, Ghosts of Gettysburg, can they sign up for one of your uh, private tours? They can sign up for the, the the tours. Yeah, they're not exactly private. I don't give tours uh, anymore of or, or or investigation. We do certain weekends that we have. They can get the information off the website from our Haunted Crime Scenes Weekends, which Carol and, and, and Catherine and I teach, or they can register for uh, or make reservations for one of our tours, or they can buy any of my books and T-shirts and hats and things like that off the website. Uh, as a uh, historian, as an avid person interested in this, Mark, uh, what would you like to see happen in in your near future? Well, in terms of Gettysburg, I would like uh, to to see uh, maybe I think the ghost industry and the ghosts of Gettysburg are pretty much ensconced now as part of the folklore. Uh, I I would still love to see it accepted a little bit more uh, by the mainstream historians. They seem to kind of ignore us a little bit, but that's okay. I mean, you know. They have their agenda, and um, I would like to see people be a, maybe a little more skeptical about stuff they see on TV, 
<laughs> I know there are a lot of TV programs now that give you the wrong impression that every ghost is a demon. You know, that's what that's the way they try and go oh, now. Yeah, but uh, we can gain a lot of knowledge from uh, our spirit friends. And, uh, I mean, let's face it, we're all just ghosts in making, right? Eventually, we're all going to go there, so... Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, this is kind of a crazy, wet left, out of left field question, but uh, have you ever thought, Mark, that one of the reasons you're f- so fascinated is because maybe you were present back then? Well, Scott, I've often thought about that. Um, I hear it all the time from reenactors, mm-hmm. okay, people who uh, are, you know, dress up and come and fight of mock battles here, they're convinced without a doubt that they were here as a, as a soldier or maybe a civilian. I have to look back to my very, very early days when I first started coming here, how I felt when I got here, and uh, it was as if I'd, I was coming home, as if I'd been here before. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happened maybe as, as near as maybe 10 or or, or maybe even five years ago, when you go out on the battlefield, and, you know, I should be jaded by now. I'm so used to it. I lived on the battlefield, you know. I, I patrolled on the battlefield at night. And um, But I got out there, and I, and I started thinking about what these men did here. And I got kind of choked up. And it was almost as if I was standing there and had lost friends. Uh, in this battle, mm-hmm. so you know, I you know I, I the jury's still out as far as as whether I believe in reincarnation or not. I kind of lean towards it, but if if there is such a thing, then I probably was here. I probably lived here before because I there, there are not many other places I get that feeling. Mm-hmm. I think if Getty I may, if them, I yeah. may, this is this is Jim Mark. Uh, if I may, I think I would ask that same question of Scott. That Scott, do you feel that you were there? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, what do you say, Scott? Yeah, I, uh, I certainly have a connection to to the Civil War and to that to that particular battle. I'd also like to explore and find out sometime the the men that were at Gettysburg that also later on were at uh, the uh, Battle Little Bighorn. Uh, Besides, and I'm talking about Custer, but if there were other men that were there that had also served in the Civil War, because I'm interested in both of those, uh, have been for a long time. Mark, uh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, we are like we are that. out of time. Uh, please feel that the door is always open, and I'm going to try to plan a personal trip out to Gettysburg, and I'll be in contact with you before I come. Um, Maybe we that could even do a great, live yeah. radio show from someplace there in oh, Gettysburg. that would be awesome. Uh, uh, again, Mark, thank you very much. I know that you have been just inundated and swamped. I really appreciate it. I have uh, enjoyed in so many ways talking with you again on the program. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me, Scott. Ghosts of Gettysburg, Volume 8, just got released. You'll find out more about Mark Nesbitt and the many books that he's authored at his website, ghostsofgettysburg.com. Stay tuned for Vic with Mesoterra. He's coming up next. Vic is in the house. And uh, Colleen, what are you doing for the rest of the weekend? 
Like I said, probably just making more craft stuff and whatnot. And I believe um, around Labor Day weekend, we might be heading up to South Dakota to visit family and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. so if that happens to fall on a, like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday sort of thing, I'll let you know. Thank you. Jim, what are you doing for the rest of the weekend? I'll probably be making more radio waves. You just got a piece of equipment, too, you've been working be on. with that a little bit more, too, I think, trying to figure out how to integrate it into my workbench. Mm-hmm. Well, I got my lawn mowed last night, so I got that out of the Congratulations. way. Congratulations. And I don't know if I'm going to mow another one tonight or, or wait until Sunday <laughs> or Monday, but I'm going to have a great day. And, again, I really enjoyed uh, the program with Mark Nesbitt today talking about the uh, the Battle of Gettysburg um, and, uh, as importantly, the ghosts and spirits that still reside there in and around Gettysburg. Uh, our guest next week is Peter Robbins. And the well-known ufologist, always going to be an interesting conversation with Mr. Robbins. Looking forward to that show as well. Thank you so much for listening today, uh, Jim and Colleen. Really appreciate you both in a multitude of ways. Thanks for being here. Great fun today, Scott. You're welcome. And coming up is Vic with Mesoterra. Right after you hear this music, it'll be all things Mesoterra. I'm Scott Colborn. Till next week, walk in beauty.